You need to pray for our nation. It's, it's upside down right now. We, we as a people need to continue to pray. Um, regardless of your political views, uh, we as a people, as God's people, we need to stand in the gap. Satan is having a heyday right now, and we need to pray for our nation. So let's, let's do that right now. We'll pray for the Bible study, and we'll get into our, our text tonight. Lord, we just want to pray for our nation. We are grateful, Lord, that, that uh, with the members of con- Congress in the shooting this morning in Virginia, the, that no one died except for the assailant. And we just pray, Father, for that congressman, we pray that he would recover, and the staffer and the other uh, police officers that were were hit uh, with bullets. We just pray, God, for you to intervene in in, in this nation that is so um, divided politically, and then and then the workplace violence here in San Francisco where people died. We just pray, Father, that the church would stand up and and pray. That we, Lord, would stand in the gap as your people, uh, interceding, Lord, and, and praying for righteousness to exalt our nation, for peace in our nation and it's in our schools, our colleges and universities where there's so much turmoil. And I pray, Lord, that, that it would begin with the church and pastors in our nation pr- teaching the truth to people and the people going out and speaking the truth to those that don't know. That are, that are living lies, that, that they live based on what they hear rather than the truth of your word. So, Lord, help us be people of the truth. And as we open your word now, Lord, illuminate our hearts and minds. Give us your wisdom. Help us to live in light of your truth. And as we look at this story tonight in Genesis 38, Lord, teach us, we pray, in Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to uh, Genesis 38 tonight. We come to the really the last section of the book of Genesis. Um, it's really all about this man, Joseph. We've been looking at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and we sang even about Jacob tonight. We've learned about Jacob. When you sing a, his name, does it make you, make you think twice? Jacob actually becomes, uh, you know, the man God wants him to be, but it, it, he, it doesn't happen until he's almost dead. Um, and his family is so upside down. In this final section of the, the book, we're looking again like at Joseph. And I've entitled the series, you'll see it there on the slide, uh, A Man of Integrity and Forgiveness. The, the, actually, the first slide that was up there a moment ago. The title of the series, there it is there. It's The Life of Joseph because he's a man that shows integrity. And if you know the story, forgiveness big time, right? And so he's our example to look at. But uh, this chapter has nothing to do with Joseph. It's another one of those chapters that's challenging. It's like a parenthesis here, and it's all about the man Judah, the fourth-born son of Jacob. Uh, He had this son, Jacob, with Leah. In fact, this chapter reveals what we already know. This family is upside down, and these kids are problem kids. They are just messed up big time, all of them. I mean, I'll point that out in a, a moment. With the exception of Joseph and Benjamin, the two youngest. And that'll emerge as we move in further uh, toward the end of the book. But let's, let's begin by reading. I'll just read the first 11 verses. You'll get a taste of it. I'm going to come back and do exposition. But let's read together, beginning in verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah, he departed from his brothers. So he leaves the family. 
and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Hira becomes his really close friend in this story. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her, so she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet a, a, again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And he was in Kebitz there when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur. For his firstborn. So we're looking at like 15 years, just boom, went by that quick in the text. And Ur is now a, a grown young man, and, and let's say he's 15, I'm not sure, but, but uh, he finds a wife, Jacob finds a wife for his firstborn, her name was Tamra. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Wow. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife, he went in there, but he, admit, he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Wow. Then Judah said to Tamar, the, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila's grown. For he said, I don't want him to die like my other two boys. I mean, go back to your father's house. Now, <laughs> we've been studying, uh, and we got out of Jacob, and it was like, I was like, man, now we're, we're going to look at Joseph. And then I forgot about this chapter, actually. But, but there, there's a lesson here. There's a lesson. Let me throw this out just, just as a beginning. Fathers, there's a lesson here. How come these boys are so messed up? How come they're so wicked? I believe it's because they're dads. Father's Day's on Sunday. I'm going to give the fathers in our fellowship a message from God's word. But, but tonight, I just want to make this point with Father's Day just coming up here. Jacob had spent way too much time in Haran making money. Remember, God prospered him. And he was making money hand over fist for Laban. He was making money. He was happy making money. He was finding himself in making money. But he could care less about his sons, and it shows, right? They're just running crazy. He's a passive dad. He's not engaged with his kids. He hasn't taught them anything righteous. No wonder there's such failures. And that God would have to kill his sons, because of their wickedness. Scary, isn't it? But the, the truth here, again, the Bible is a real book written by God, not man. This is another one of those stories that shows us that, you know, Jacob's not going to tell how lousy a father he is. God records it. There's a couple of reasons for that. I'll go into that in a moment. But, but Jacob was so concerned about money and success and all his wives that he just really didn't spend time teaching his sons about God and, and walking righteously. We believe that he knew because of his, you know, great-grandfather and now Judah's great-great-grandfather, or it would be his great-grandfather, Abraham. Abraham knew some of those things. In fact, here's a verse real quick I want to start with tonight, Genesis 18, where God says, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. He's talking about Abraham, that they keep the way of the Lord. God required Abraham to teach his children to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness 
and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God had told him, to, uh, this is a main priority of your life, Dad, Abraham, of your children. You teach them. You instruct them. And again, it, it just pops up here that we see these kids that are so wicked, they were not taught. They were not instructed. There's no room in God's church for passive parenting. We need to be active parents. We need to lead our children. We need to teach them what's right and wrong. We don't leave that to the school district. I mean, really? We teach them. We have God's truth in our hands, and we're to teach them that. So really my encouragement, uh, Jacob was so busy making money, he neglected his children. And every one of his boys, except for the two, uh, Joseph and Benjamin, they were sinful to the core. Reuben, remember the firstborn, Reuben. He took one of his dad's concubine and laid with her. And then the other, Simeon and Levi, remember the next two, number two and number three. Those are the ones that devised a plan because their, their sister Dinah was raped. And so they devised a plan to have the, the men, you know, join them as Jews and be circumcised. And then after three days when they were really weak, they went and they, they killed them. They slaughtered these men, all the men of the city of Shechem. And then the rest of the sons of, of uh, Jacob, they, all of them, uh, Isaac, part, no, it's Jacob, pardon me. All of them come and they pillage the city. They steal everything out of the city. I mean, these kids are out of control. They're wicked to the core. And all of that's been recorded. We saw that back in chapter 34. But here's the question. Why is this story here now? We come to this story tonight and you're going to go, wow, I don't know if I really want to go any further in this story. I just read 11 verses. Wow, what else happens here? <laughs> but the truth is that there's, there's some reasons that the text is in here. Obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this, and I'm not going to just jump over it because I don't like the context here. I, I want to I see it. I want to teach it. I want to understand it. I hope you want to understand it too, but I, let me give you a couple of reasons that make sense for why it's recorded right here in the, in the text, because it's, number one, because it's through Judah that the Messiah comes, and we're getting a record of Judah and his family here. Now, again, the rest of the book is really awesome. It's, it's, we start with Joseph next week. But here we see the contrast, the, the antithesis of this man of integrity, Joseph. We, we have, you know, th these sons, and, and they're wicked, and it's Judah, number four. Remember, we already know about Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Now it's number four, Judah. And Judah is not a perfect person. In fact, Judah's life is very dark. It's ugly. Joseph's life, on the other hand, is light and wonderful, and we're, we're going to get there, uh, as I've said. But I, I believe that, that this contrast is put here so we'll really appreciate Joseph and his obedience. So we're going to see the contrast. That's one of the reasons. Joseph... As we come here to verse, or chapter 38, he's already in Egypt. He's already down there. God's already working sovereignly in his life to bring about his purpose in his life. But, but up here in, in Canaan, we've still got this family and God is dealing with them. Secondly, Judah's life, which is really like wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn away. It's, it's a, that contrast with Joseph's gold and silver. Again, that's what we're going to see. And, and again, as we look at this story, we'll see all about 
all the things that emerge. But Judah's family line, it's, it's sinful. And we're going to see how the Messiah comes through. It's very interesting. God doesn't pull any punches. Man is evil to the core, all of them. So he's showing us that his family, this family line, is corrupt and evil, just like you and I. Again, we can identify with his stories, I, I truly believe. But the bigger story here is that God's got to move his chosen people out of this land of Canaan. This story really illustrates how nasty, how evil, how bad the Canaanites were. And God's got to get them out of there because he wants to purify them. And he's going to use Egypt to do that. You'll see that as we look at the story. But God doesn't want his people to continue to be, to be brought down to the level of the people in Canaan. And this chapter reveals the sin of Canaan and, and how easily Judah just kind of f- fits right in. And, you know, it's, it's like that in our lives, too. It's so easy just to go with the flow, do what the rest of the society is doing, say the same words, even if they're filthy, have the same kind of trash come through our television screens into our home and just kind of be, just go with the flow. And it's so easy to, to inculcate God doesn't want us to, he wants us to be separated from all that trash. That's what he wants for us. And and we get that in Christ. He separates us from our sin. It's called sanctification. It's a beautiful work that God does in our lives right now. But but the truth is, he's got to work in this family. There are two themes that kind of run through this chapter. The first is how quickly the people of God can become morally corrupt with all this stuff. It kind of goes along with what I just said anything can corrupt you, church. You need to be very careful and aware of that. Judah, he marries a Canaanite woman and he blends right into the corrupt culture, just fits right in and lives just like they were living. And then in chapter 39, we're going to see the contrast where Joseph, he resists the culture. He's in Egypt and he resists it all. It's, It's a beautiful story, the contrast. You can't, Get away from that. It's important. The second theme that I see is the holiness of God, the grace of God. God is holy when he strikes dead these wicked sons. He's holy. He, he acts righteously there. But then he, at the end of the story, you're going to see where Perez, in the line of Jesus, Perez comes as an act of God's grace. So we'll, we'll see that as well. Now, let's begin in, in the first five verses. I'm going to go through them, not, not too slowly, but we see Judah, my first point, Judah and his sons, obviously, it came to pass that at the time of Judah departed from his brothers. So he left his brothers and he visited an Adulamite whose name was Hira. So Adulam was a city about 15 miles north of Hebron, which is kind of the area that Jacob was living in. And Judah is a businessman. Judah's going to do business. He's, that's what he knows. He knows how to make money. He made a lot in Haran, and now he's making a lot where he's living. He's a, that's that's whole, his whole thing, and I'll, I'll show you how that works in his life. But, but he wants to do business, and, and he's always making a deal. And it's back in chapter 37. Judah is the one that says... Uh, Let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him to the traders that are coming in the caravan. Let's sell him. Let's make some money off him. This, this guy is a businessman. That's what he knows. He's, he's spent his whole life doing that. So Judah, he meets this other man, this, this uh, uh, 
uh, Hira here, and his, man, his name actually uh, has to do with wealth. So it's a, like a wealthy friend. He's a wealthy guy. He was a wealthy businessman, and he has this wealthy friend. In verse 2, Judah saw in that city there a daughter. He saw a woman, a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her, and he went into her. So we're not told the name of Judah's wife throughout this whole chapter. You'll never hear her main, named. I, I, I would imagine she's such an evil Canaanite that there's no mention of, of her name. But her family is very wealthy, and Judah makes friends with them. And Judah commits fornication, and he marries this woman. And the result is, as J. Vernon McGee would say, was he married her, so he erred. I love, I love J. Vernon. He's, he's classic. So, so she conceived, verse 3, and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And that name means awake. Someone said maybe because he was a baby that kept them awake all night. I don't know. But, but that's what his name means, awake. And Jacob names the first son. And then the unnamed wife, she's going to name the next two kids. So he names the first one, Onan there. Uh, she, or pardon me, Ur. And then secondly, verse 4, she named Onan, verse 5, and she conceived again and named Shelah, and he was at Kezib there when she bore him. So Onan's name means strong. Shelah's name means a petition. Not really sure how that fits into the story here. But Judah has three sons, and they live in Kezib. Very interesting. A little town near Adulam. That's where he went, 15 miles north. And there's another little city, and they must have had their, you know, their sheep shearing business there, and he was making a lot of money, so that's where he, he planted himself away from his brothers. Remember, he left his brothers, and now he's that kind of out on his own, making money on his own. And then the story jumps like 15 years ahead with my next point here. It's heirs, marriage, and death, verse 6. Then Judah took a wife from, from Er or Ur, however you want to say that, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Judah's job was to find a wife and then take care of this, this daughter-in-law of his. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We don't, it doesn't say exactly what he did, but the Lord killed him. Again, we don't know what he did. The, the, the wickedness, the raw uh, in Hebrew, is translated evil or grievous or just bad. He was, that's what he was. He was an evil, bad person. And uh, even though we don't know what his wickedness was, it was bad enough for God to take him out. So that's the first one. Here's the application again in this story. I've got to draw some things out of here. But growing up with a father... A passive dad, a man that never taught morality to his kids. You have this messed up family. I believe had everything to do with the death of this child, the father. And his mother was a Canaanite. She's not mentioned here. Again, the Canaanites were, were godless people. As you study the book of Exodus, you find out how evil they are. And that God actually... Um, he, he wants them wiped off the planet because of their evil. They're just vicious people. But their son, in this case, was vicious. He was wicked, so Er dies. And then the next son, Onan, was just as bad. Verse 8, Judah said to Onan, 
Now, you, you have an obligation. You've got to go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to her, your brother, because they, they didn't have any kids, and that's what we do. We take care of the firstborn, and the, the heir, E-R-R, you know, and then we have E-R here, you know, the, the heir of the family, and then the heir of this son, um, he, they had to raise up family to him. That was the it's called the Leverite, the law of the Leverite. Lev, Levir in, in Hebrew means brother. And so you're raising up to your brother, you know, family, so you can share the family uh, wealth. But Owen, or Onan, pardon me, knew that the heir would not be his. So selfishly, and it came to pass that he, when he went into her life, he did what he did, lest he should give her heir to a brother. And the thing displeased the Lord because it was not honoring them. God doesn't want this in his family. He wants them to honor one another, and he isn't doing this. And so God killed him also. Now, again, if, if a man died before providing sons to take the family's fortune, it was the duty of the brothers. Again, it's called leveret marriage. And you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. If you, it was adopted then. It was something that was customary in the land, but it was adopted by God's people and written about in Deuteronomy 25. And so the child that died, brother, was supposed to raise up an heir through that woman. That was the, the plan there so that the dead brother's name could be carried on. But Onan's evil. He doesn't impregnate her. He's happy to use her, by the way, but he doesn't obey. He refused to fulfill his obligation to his dead brother. If he had any morality at all, he would have said, no, I, I can't go into her because I don't want to have a child with her. But he uses her and then spills his seed. So it's just a perverted thing. This family, again, is upside down. Judah... The businessman, all he can think about is money. He's, gets, he's stuck with this woman now. Think about this. He's stuck with, with his sons. You know, I got to take care of her. I don't want to take care of her. I mean, he's selfish to the core. Uh, he just thinks about money. He doesn't want to support her. So he tries to get his son, to, and it, that, that doesn't work. And then, then his second son dies. And then we have the rest of the story here. So that sets us up for the middle part of this this uh, book here, verse 11, my next point, Judah's unjust treatment of Tamar. He's unjust to her. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until my youngest, Shelah, is grown. Shelah or Shelah in the Hebrew. For he said, lest Shelah, my youngest, dies also like his brother's. So he kind of blames her. He, he says, you go live with your dad. I don't, wanna, I don't want you, you know, living off of my wealth and my income. And it was shameless. This was wrong. He was res- responsible for her. His son married her, so he's now responsible. But he doesn't take responsibility either. And it says here at the end of verse 11, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So she goes off in shame. So Judah tells Tamar that she's got to go back and wait for the third son to get old enough to marry. Again, Judah is blaming Tamar with the death of his sons. He believes he did something, poisoned their food, or I don't know. He doesn't know either. But he blames her, lest he also die like his 
brother. Sends, sends him back, says, when Shelah's ready, you can come, come back and, and, and you can marry him. So she goes home humiliated, and she starts devising a plan. And she, she uh, should have lived with Jacob, and Jacob should have allowed, um, uh, I'm, I'm pardon, pardon me, Judah, and Judah should have allowed her to live there with her. But, but this family's corrupt. It's wicked. The first two die. And she doesn't have an option. She's a widow. She, she's got no place to go, no man to marry. So she's under her father-in-law's authority, but he won't take responsibility and provide for her. So that really sets us up for this story. Tamar gets the message. She goes back to her parents. And she knows that, that Judah has no intention when his thirdborn grows up for that marriage to take place because he's already said, lest you kill you know, him like you killed my first two sons. She knows that he's not going to be faithful. So she's going to take matters into her own hands. This is really interesting. We come to verse 12, Tamar's trap. I call it Tamar's trap. Look at verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, there's no mention of her name again, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to the sheep shears at Timnah. So he goes back to doing work. He's going to go back to check on the sheep shears of his great herds. He and his friend Hira, the, together, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she heard, where, where, where's he going? What's going on? I, I, I heard his wife died. So she gets the, the news that he's going over to uh, um, shear some sheep there. Say that three times fast. And it was, again, verse 14. So she took off her widow's garments because she was in mourning. You know, her husband died and there's no other husband. So she's wearing these widow garments and she dresses up here. And they're very interesting. She covered herself with a veil and she wrapped herself and she sat in an open place which was on the way to this city, Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, but she was not given to him as wife. She knew that Judah wasn't going to fulfill his obligation. So she's got this plan now. Um, she, she knows that, that she's not going to get married. She didn't have a husband. And she hears about this business trip that Judah is on to, to the city Timnah. And so she races out ahead of him. She's got this evil plan here. She dresses up like a prostitute. She puts a veil on her face. She, she wraps her body all up. And that was a sign. It's like the red light. It's like, you know, whatever they dress like now. I, I, I don't know. Although, I'll tell you this. I, I told Esther, it was about a, three months ago, I was driving home and I, I had my iPod on. And I wasn't driving and iPodding. I pulled over I, in one of these little side streets. I just pulled it right up baseline. I pulled over and stopped. And I was trying to get my iPod to work. It was like, I, I think it was Wednesday night, 9 o'clock. Oh, gee, it scared me to death. And I looked up, and here's this woman with hardly anything on. And, and I just, it was like, ah! And I just, man. In this day and age, in this day and age, it's, they wrapped, they, they covered everything, and they would sit outside the gates, and that advertised as, hey, I'm, I'm for hire. That's really what she's doing here. 
And Judah knew that she was available. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he knew or thought, she's a harlot because she covered her face. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, uh, can I come to, into you? For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Why? Because she covered her face and she wrapped her body up. So she said, what are you going to give me that, I'm, that you may come into me? And he said, I'll give you a young goat from my flock. He's a businessman. That's what he does. He has goats. I'll give you a, a, a goat. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? In other words, I don't trust you to give me a goat. You got to give me a down payment. You got to give me something right now that proves you're going to give me this goat. She knows how shrewd this guy is. So Judah agrees to pay this prostitute in his mind by giving her this goat, but she wants an IOU. That's, that's what's going on here. Verse 18, then he said, what pledge shall I give you? What do you, what do you want? So she looks at him and she says, I want your signet and cord and your staff that's in your hand. I want your signet and cord and, and the staff. And so he gave those things to her. Didn't mean anything to him. He just wanted his little thrill. And he went into her and notice she conceived by him. Now this signet and cord, the signet and the cord, a cord around his neck and a signet ring. The signet ring is like a stamp. They would, the businessman would stamp in wax a deal to be made or seal a document. And everybody knew that little, whatever his mark was, was on the signet and he would push it in a wax. It'd be like your driver's license. He left his driver's license with her. I mean, his, all his ID, that's, that's his main identification. He left, he didn't care. Insane, huh? I mean, people do the most insane things. If, if you're like me, you'll hit the gas and run. I mean, uh, be a Joseph. We're, we're going to learn about Joseph and Potiphar's wife next time. But um, so he leaves his driver's license and the staff. Those are very personal things to him. So here's the trap. It's been sprung on him, Tamar. Verse 19, so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and she put back on her widow garments. She went back home. Now, when Judah got home, he's going to send a goat. So at least he had a little morality. He's going to send the goat down to her as payment and he does that with his friend. So he sends his friend to to take the goat so he can get back his driver's license and his staff. He, He wanted those things back. And this is where, in my next point here, Tamar disappears. Look at verse 20. Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So the guy goes down to this same place outside the city, looks for the prostitute, all dressed in black, face covered. She's not there. He looks everywhere, can't find her. Then he asks the men of the place, surely the men are going to know about the harlot. Where's the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, what harlot? There's no harlot here. We don't have any harlots here. Interesting. So he returned to Judah, said, I can't find her. Also, the men of this place said that there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. I'm not going to go back and try to find her. She can just keep my driver's license and my staff. For I sent this young goat, and you haven't found her. So I've tried to do my thing. I'm not going back there. And we're going to get shamed. We're going to get found out. You know, this is, this is the beginning of his 
double life, his hypocrisy, which is another point of this story. The people of Timnah, they've never seen a prostitute in that place before. And the, serv- the servant comes home with, with a goat without the driver's license and the staff. And that's when we get Judah's dirty laundry. That's why I've entitled this study Judah's Dirty Laundry. This is his dirty laundry here. It's all exposed. And here's my next point here, verse 24. Judah's hypocrisy is exposed, verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after. So three months have gone by since he tried to pay her back with a goat. Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. She's pregnant, and and she's not married. She did it by harlotry. That was the story. So Judah said, bring her out to me and let her be burned. Wow. I mean, the wickedness, the evilness of this family, the harshness, the cruelty, his, his immediate judgment was, burn her which was not even a custom of of that day. Stoning was the custom of the day. He wanted her burned. Judah, he's the judge. He's the jury. There's no appeal. There's nobody listening. He makes the decision because he holds power over her. Why? Because she was married to his son, and it was his responsibility to find a wife for her or to take her. As his wife. That was his responsibility of leverage. You can read that again in Deuteronomy 25. But he doesn't, he's not doing anything. This is his excuse to get rid of her. And he says, let her be burned. I mean, heartless, heartless. He, he forces this, this strict moral code. She's a prostitute. She's with child and she's not married. I can't believe it. I mean, he's a hypocrite, isn't he? There's no morality in this man. So it's at her execution now that Tamar is going to produce some evidence, important evidence. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent, so she's brought out to the public. She, he wants her burned. She sent to her father-in-law saying, listen, by the man whom these belong, I'm with child. This is the man that impregnated me. And she said, please determine whose these are. I have these things that were given to me when that wild night. Here they are. Here's a signet and a cord, and here's a staff. Busted. Exposed. In public here. And that's when this man realizes that he's the hypocrite. And it's when Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, he's got to say, look what he says here in verse 26. Judah acknowledged them. I wonder how long he looked at him. I wonder if in his mind he tried to say, oh, these aren't mine, these aren't mine, this can't be me. Signet ring, driver's license. Got your picture on it. This is your staff and everybody knows it. It was your, your, you used that for business to make your deals. The staff, everybody knew you by that and everybody sees it right now. And they're like, and they're looking at him and he's looking at her and he's looking at his stuff. He is completely busted at this this point in time and he said to them she has been more righteous than I wow I mean that's that's because I did not give her to Shelah my son and he never knew her again something changed in him he never knew her again he kept away from her he didn't abuse her more righteous than I meaning that she was 
All, all she was doing this whole time was trying to get what was rightfully hers. And he realizes that. And he admits that publicly. She didn't play the harlot. She, she went to him specifically. She ran ahead. She planned it out. This was her right to be impregnated by this family. She did the right thing. He's the one that's the hypocrite. He's the one that was lying. He's the scoundrel uh, in this story. And, and it's his act of immorality. He's busted. He has no comment. It's, it's, it's outrageous here. His, his, the way he's acted and all that he's done. She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. My son's old enough. I should have done this. So he's, everything comes out. He knows he's wrong. He knows he's done the, the wrong thing as well. He knew all along it was his responsibility to provide for her, but she had to manipulate the situation to make it work. Now, the only good news <laughs> out of the story, again, it's one of those stories where you're going, oh, Pastor Lee, boy, this is a long night. The, the story, again, there's, there's a couple of positive things, but the most positive thing is that Judah admits his sin. Judah's going to become a, a real faithful man. But he's got to go through this difficulty. He's got to face himself. God is showing him who he is. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who in here? What Christian is there that, that doesn't sin and then God just shows you in a mirror what you've just done? He does that with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He's in us and the Holy Spirit begins to, to grieve and we be, begin to mourn and, and we, we know it's wrong. We sense it's wrong as a believer. I didn't commit that sin the other night, but I've said things and I've thought things that are wrong. They're just as sinful. And when I do, the Lord shows me those things just like he shows you. And I'm glad he does. Oh, that we would be, you know, this transparent with our sin and say, oh, Lord, it's me. I, I'm the sinner. I'm, I've done wrong. And we've learned in 1 John on Sunday morning, that very first chapter, of that first letter, 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from some of the bad things we do. All of it. And you know why you know all of it? Because you've done it. And you've, you've know that forgiveness when you confess your sin. He's confessing a sin. Something's changing in his life. He didn't know her. That Moses' comment, that last comment, he didn't know her anymore. And I believe that's, that goes to, he's growing, he's growing, he's learning. He never knew her again. The next time we read about Judah, he's going to be back with his brothers and father. He's going to leave this Timnah and this place, Adulam. He's going to leave there. He's going to go back with his brothers where he should have been all the time. And, and I believe, and some of the commentaries also believe that he's, he's, this has been a point of revival for him spiritually. And I would hope so. I mean, this is dramatic. At one point in time, he is accusing her. He wants her burned. And then the next point, he is revealed as a hypocrite to the max right in front of everybody. He has faced big time his sin. And I believe that he's going to go through this spiritual renewal. So that's a positive thing here. The closing of this, uh, the paragraph here, the, the closing of this book, describes the birth of the twins from 
that relationship, Judah and Tamar. And it's from this family line that we trace Jesus now. And I, I've just given you this point, Jesus' family line here in verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. Now, fantastic story here. And so it was when she was giving birth that one stuck out his hand from the womb and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened, he withdrew his hand back into the womb and the other brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? Isn't that interesting? You're going to see a midwife doing that. This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name is called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out. So Perez was really the second born. The first born stuck his hand out, tied a ribbon on, you know, and then, and then Perez came. So maybe there was a battle or going, I don't know. It's, again, this, this really is indicating the sovereignty of God working. God is working. And the other one is born. Uh, Perez is born first, and then Zerah is born second. So the twin that was born first would get what in this society? The birthright. It's all about the birthright and the heir to the family. And, and so that's what we're seeing here. The midwife identifies the first one with this scarlet thread. But his little hand was withdrawn. And then the other boy comes out first and they name him Perez. While the scarlet thread is on the other one that's born second, this Zara. And the, the genealogies that we read in the scriptures, again, they prove that Perez is the firstborn. And he's the firstborn son um, of Judah. And he's the one to carry on the messianic line all the way through David and ultimately to Jesus Christ through this family. Let me throw a couple of verses real quick to prove that. It's in Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. Here it is on the screen. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. This is God's plan. It's recorded there in Ruth. And then Matthew 1, if you ever read the most, <laughs> it's an important text of scripture, but it's boring because you can't pronounce the name. It's Matthew chapter 1. Read it. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. But the important thing is this. I'll put it on the screen. Matthew 1 verse 3, it says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, the same story that we're reading tonight. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and on and on and on you go through until you finally come to Jesus. So the family line, that's the important thing. Okay, so what do we learn from this story? Number one, God took this son Perez from an ungodly family, and he put him in the family line of the Messiah, even though the parents... Judah and Tamar were disgusting. They were sinners. They were wrong in all that they did. And, and, and you think about that. And it's like, well, why did God do that? That means God chose Judah, who is an, a liar. He's a businessman. He's, a, he's, he's wicked. His sons are wicked. God chose Tamar and Perez, her son, God chose to bring the Messiah through these descendants. God not only forgave them, but he restored them and he transformed them. Here's the beauty of this story. I don't care if you come from what's known as a dysfunctional family or not. I don't, it doesn't matter what your parents are like. God, God restores. God 
transforms. God is your father in heaven. And I know that there's a lot of messed up people in churches. Maybe not this church. Maybe you're that person we're talking about. Maybe you have the parents that were really messed up. I had loving parents. They weren't Christians, but they were moral. I got my tongue, my mouth washed out with soap for saying darn. You know, I remember once. I just said darn, you know, and my mom pulled my tongue out and just, soap. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe that's why I'm the way I am. I could be. I'm deranged. But, but the, truth, the truth of the matter is you may come from a real dysfunctional home or you might not have had a dad or a mom. I think there's a lot of kids being raised that way in society. Listen, God, if God can choose these guys, they, they seem hopeless, God can you, choose you. If God can use them, he can use you. I think that's one of the great truths of this story. And again, one of the great stories as we get to the end of Genesis is we see Judah Judah is transformed, and that's grace. That's what God does when he comes into the life of an individual. When you come to Jesus Christ, your life is changed. It doesn't matter what happened in the past, and it doesn't matter what you've done. Because there is not one sin that is unforgivable. And God can come into your life, and he can forgive you of all your sin. It doesn't matter if your family was corrupt or your family was messed up. God can use any and all, and will, if you'll come to him. I believe God can use me, he can use you, he can do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you are. If you turn to Jesus Christ, he can make you a new creature. That's the beauty. Again, the story. Jesus died for the sinner. He didn't die for the religious man. He didn't, in, in, in the sense of the righteous, the self-righteous. He died for the sinner. And for any sinner that will come to him and confess their sin, he'll forgive you. That's the beauty of the story. And I'm glad we're done with this chapter. And we're going to move into Joseph's life next week. And there's some stuff going on in Joseph's life that are crazy. But Joseph, a man of integrity... If you're a, a sister in the Lord, you can identify with Joseph too. You can live in a life of integrity and honesty. And that's what we see in the, the man Joseph. And we'll get to him next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word tonight. I'm so grateful, Lord, after reading a story like this, that I know that you died on the cross for me, for sinners. You, Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, you became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I, I'm so grateful for that. I thank you for these men and women that are studying this tonight. And I don't know how you're talking to them, but, but Lord, if there's a hypocrite here, if there's someone here that's not confessed their sin, Lord, that they would do that even now. They would just confess their sin. Oh, Lord, do that work of forgiveness. If there's someone here tonight that's never put their faith in Christ, you can do that tonight. Jesus died for you. And as you believe in him, as Lord and as Savior, as you turn from your sin, as you ask forgiveness and turn to Christ, he'll forgive you. 
Father, do that work through your Son that only you can do in forgiveness and salvation by your wonderful and marvelous grace, we pray in Jesus. Amen.